This is episode 14 of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. On today's show, we welcome Galib Suleiman, who is the founder and CEO of Polytomic, and they are the world's first anywhere ETL platform. Galib has over 15 years of experience working within data and tech, which has seen him grow a number of specialist data teams before branching out to launch Polytomic back in 2019. Really pleased to welcome you on the show today, Galib. And if you wouldn't mind by kicking off just to give us a bit of a background to your experience and what ultimately led you to uh, launch Polytomic. Sure. Um, pleasure to be here. Career is a very typical software engineering one um, initially. At some point, I did wade my way into machine learning well before all the deep learning hype came about. And after working in machine learning research for a bit, I did move to a startup. There were 25 people when I joined, no data infrastructure, growing extremely quickly. And I ended up working there from, let's see, when there were 25 people to about 350 uh, when I left. And in the meantime, I was the sole data person who then founded a data team and was really at the center of every data mess within the company. And so I was I had to set up an ETL tool back in the day, and it was Redshift. There was no Snowflake back then. And it was a very, very early customer of Loka as well. And so sorted out a BI tool as well, and then just grew a team of data and analytics people. Now, what really irritated me at the time was when moving data, the industry was just so fragmented. You know, if you wanted to move data into the warehouse, well, there's a pool of vendors that only do that. If you wanted to do so-called reverse ETL, well, you could buy other vendors for that or write your own code. On the business IT side, they wanted to move data between their business systems and, well, between, let's say, their accounting system and their sales system. Well, there's another pool of vendors for that. Now, you wanted to move things between spreadsheets, which sounds so simple, but there was a cottage industry of tiny startups that only moved data to and from spreadsheets. And so this was really the genesis. It was just the madness of such a fragmented industry. All people really wanted to do, me included at the time, was just move data around and didn't really want to get taken down the journey of, well, figure out your use case, figure out your data volumes, figure out your recency requirements, and only then pick from a pool of vendors. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we'll, we'll get on to this later, but from my own experience and, and working in this space, there seems to be so many different vendors, different tools, different setups. Uh, that's almost whether we're coming to an implosion point on that. I think where they, there's going to be a consolidation of a, a lot of these tools and technologies. But for you to say kind of look at, I remember I think three four years ago when they were almost like a fledgling startup in San Francisco and now they're kind of the kind of one of the go-to BI tools what do you think's behind that rise in uh, what seems pretty recent rise of all so many more new tools and technologies and products within almost a similar kind of domain you know this isn't a cynical response I do think this is a matter <laughs> of it's a matter of fact one I think um I think after Snowflake IPO'd, a lot of VC money just went into data and analytics as a reaction. Uh, you, yeah. This is a, again, it's a, it's, I really do not mean this cynically. It's just simply, I think, market forces and an indicator of how markets are run by human beings at the end of the day who do follow trends. Now, of course, Snowflake's 
growth is valid, right? I mean, data warehouses are popping up left and right. Everyone gets to wanting one at some point. But there is a bit of um, a trend aspect, again, with their IPO. And I think you'll notice, or I suspect we will notice, that a lot of the point solutions will they will wither away. And that mm. they've, there's a lot of solutions that have just taken money because it was plentiful. And now that it's not so plentiful, I do reckon we're due for some amount of consolidation. But I think the genesis was probably Snowflake's IPO initially being so hyped. And that just resulted in a load of money and everyone spending the money that they took from that time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I've probably not viewed it that way, but when money was cheap and the VC money was flying and, you know, people were getting on the coattails of another IPO, hoping they were going to get that 12, 13, 14 times kind of valuation. I think what we've seen now is the stock reality of an overinflated market, which has kind of brought us back to a point where, maybe we should have always been at but i think maybe after post covid the bounce back was so dramatic because uh, there was kind of data projects you know change projects that were happening and i'm guessing for polytomic being you set up literally on the eve of um, of covid by the looks of it mm. in terms of the early stages for for kind of aspiring entrepreneurs or budding product owners who are listening into this what what was your kind of initial mindset and steps that you took to firstly conceive the idea then actually make that idea a reality you know there wasn't much effort with conceiving it i suppose the effort was implicit through years and years of um, experience and blood sweat and tears just working in data there's something rather beneficial i think to spending years accumulating expertise you do naturally start to react to annoying problems that you face and you start reacting Mm. to them with potential solutions now, for us, we actually didn't get our first customer until, what was it? It was something like September, October 2020. So, you know, post-COVID lockdown. Yeah. Um, that phase certainly was unpleasant. You know, having COVID hit right when we um, graduated from Wire Combinator, ostensibly to raise money and having the market face lockdowns and a mysterious disease um, wasn't exactly mm. the best experience <laughs> for a budding startup. <laughs> Um, but we scraped together some cash and our product is a heavy one. A heavy one meaning um, it was it's tough to build. You know, it's not the sort of product you build in three months and then you're off to the races. Um, we just kept at it, honestly, until we closed our first customers. And then that's when we really raised our proper seed round. And this was um, November 2020 at this point. And so there's no easy path. You know, all I can do is sort of shrug and go, well, I suppose just work hard and um, know the market you're entering. But you do see all sorts out there. Some of the most successful companies were started on a whim yeah. uh, without, you know, naming names. But there's certainly enough stories I've heard where the founders just sort of wrote down nine ideas on a whiteboard, picked one, and they were off to the races. Other ones mm. do start sort of with people more of my background, where it's just someone who spent years and years and years in a market. So I don't begrudge anyone. When it comes to particular approaches, you do find all sorts. But this was ours. Yeah, it's funny. And going back to the point you just said there, you know, when you when you in that space yourself and you're coming up against the same problem and probably subconsciously doing workarounds to that solution and thinking, hang on a minute, the more effective solution could be build my own solution. And I suppose that's the the entrepreneurial, the difference between an entrepreneur and someone that's kind of, you know, relying on other people to make that decision for them. You actually will 
sold this. I'm going to go and actually create the product. That was interesting. And then obviously Y Combinator yeah. gave you the opportunity to incubate the idea and subsequently launch. Yeah, really the the motivation for our roadmap, and I tell this to every new hire, is we're building something that my past self would have liked to use. Yeah. It's really that simple. Now, it's a simply stated um, goal, but of course, it's the result of years and years of, again, suffering through problems. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I know you come from that previous background where you've worked in organizations where you've you've grown teams, you've been that uh, kind of individual contributor, probably the same at Polytomic. Um, and you probably relate to the fact that every data team starts with the first person. Um, and we have a lot of kind of budding managers here, equally aspiring leaders who maybe are making a few hiring mistakes. But what are the most common mistakes do you think to avoid when you are that data team of one? And what I mean by that is probably time management, the focus on the priorities. What, what do you think are those common mistakes you should avoid? Yeah, there's one when people do join as a data team of one. Initially, if they go through this phase of pure heroism you know they do just get to answer queries everyone's had and everyone's immediately happy and they do become (laughs) cemented as the data person despite their title saying so but culturally they get cemented as the data person this is the person i should go to for answers so they go through this wave of heroism everyone pats them on the back a very common mistake is they just continue down this path of how shall i say this really dealing with the rest of the company in a help desk fashion Oh, yes, just come to me with your requests. Well, at some point, with no system in place, deadlines start getting missed. They stop getting communicated. You're just working for your queue of tickets, right? Not knowing that, well, marketing needs this next week, and actually sales can wait on this other request for another three weeks. And finance's request was actually casually stated. They don't really care. Mm. All these subtleties behind the requests, and some not-so-subtleties, get ignored. What happens is then people start getting frustrated. You move from the hero to the person who's never prioritizing anyone's work, who's, who's never delivering anyone's work on time. And well, what's the point of all this? And you get to situations where marketing says, you know what, we'll just hire our own data person. This is a very, very common theme I've seen with data teams of one. You just don't get organized. Everyone gets frustrated. People start going through workarounds, often involving hiring their own people. And you sort of lose control and you just, you, you start waning. Um, you become the central data person who is now sort of someone who's always too busy for anyone else. Now, there are common antidotes. And really the big one is just get organized, you know, communicate priorities to everyone. Just have a public board of what you're working on, you know, whether it's on Asana or Trello or whatever tracker that everyone uses, where everyone can just see where their request is in the queue. Actually meet with everyone instead of just receiving requests over email, you know, actually have a weekly meeting with your marketing folk or your sales folk or your finance folk, stakeholders as they call them, mm-hmm. and just go over what's outstanding, what's on their minds. As people ask for things, one thing new data people never do initially is the simple question that goes, what's the priority on this? Yeah. And it can be quite illuminating where sometimes people will say, oh, you know what? Actually, it's very low. I was simply curious about this and nothing more. And if you're too busy, you can just ignore this one. Simply getting there means you've just erased a task from your to-do list. 
And yeah. in other situations, someone will go, this is so very urgent. This needs to get done tomorrow. And one response that, again, is rarely responded with when you're new is understood on the high priority. I've got these other high priority tasks from these other teams. Can you help me out with the ranking here? And it may result in two VPs talking to one another in horse trading as to who gets what first. Getting to that step does take you back into sort of a professional hero, which mm. it's everyone I think goes through a, um, a trough, if you will, of having let everyone down and not quite knowing what to do about it. Yeah, it's that kind of mindset of you want to please everyone, but you end up pleasing no one. Exactly um, that. And I think, and that's probably is quite a good segue into at what point do you feel uh, is the right time to make those subsequent hires? Because what I mean by that, say you're a individual contributor, you come into an organization and those tickets are, is it about the quantity of work you've got on? Is it actually the fact you're trying to push on to other projects or free yourselves up to do more uh, interesting projects? But at what point do you consider to look to make those those first hires? There's a couple of conditions that have to come true. And one is just a simple feeling that stuff isn't getting done on time. No matter how organized you are, the timelines are just too long to make everyone happy. Everyone has to wait mm -hmm. at least three weeks for the simplest bit of work to be done. Yeah. The other condition is if you look forward three months in time, and three months is plenty for a growing startup, assuming that's the surrounding condition here, if you can look three months in the future and there's clearly work that someone else can help with three months in the future, that's a pretty good signal. Just go off and hire someone. Yep. Assume that more work will beget more work. And if, again, you've got a full pipeline up to three months from now, you should just take that as a signal. Hire your first person. That's interesting. I think what we've seen, certainly in the market we find ourselves in now companies being very quick to um, lay off their data teams and lay off uh, some key assets to business and the, the, the knock-on effect to that to the businesses is, is far greater than I think they realize now um, and it's interesting what will happen when things pick up again whether they're going to then try and bring those people back in but we, we're, we're having conversations with plenty of people who are just overworked and under-resourced and subsequently are looking to leave because of that so and I, I suppose on that then when you're looking to set up a team structure um what do you think are the key elements or factors that that make a great team unit the there's a couple of big ones one regarding personalities you hire and the other mm -hmm. just regarding how you organize them on personalities especially in analytics it's extremely important i think to hire people who aren't exclusively biased towards the technological bits of the job yeah. people who have an affinity for business impact yeah. are crucial because so much of the job is very simply communicating with people and understanding their business requirements rather than working on a fancy algorithm mm. and you know you will find you know back when i first started hiring you know we i'd interview people who were coming from netflix for example and they'd say well hang on, what's going on here? I'm actually interested in boosting a 0.1% increase in online engagement for some corner case. I go, well, we don't have billions of users. We're a B2B <laughs> SaaS 50-person company. 
what we've got maybe 200 customers who all pay yeah. us handsomely thanks very much but uh, it's really not much data to work with for that sort of thing <laughs> our needs are a bit more prosaic if you will right um just to be dashboards to be surfaced internal analyses and so on and so one just really has to be careful you know you do find your sort of, there's a load of great physics phds out there for example who do mm. care about this sort of thing and then there are others who very much do actually belong in google working yeah. on a 0.001 percent lift in ad conversion rates right because of some algorithm hyperparameter yeah. tweak so that's one and um, people who can communicate who have an affinity for business impact rather than algorithmics and then organizationally now, there's different schools of thought as to, well, how do you even organize the data team for success? Now that you've hired people, well, what's your method of working with the rest of the company? And there's two approaches. One is a strict centralization one. You're sort of uber data dictator in the company. No one can talk to your guys without going through you. Yeah. This includes marketing, product, sales, finance, whatever it is. You're the central choke point for everything. Um, and then there's the other model, which I rather favor, which is a bit of a distributed or what some people call an agency model where you designate liaisons if you will or ambassadors to every team you know such mm. and such person on my data team is responsible for the finance team only so and so is responsible for the marketing team only where these guys would be ambassadors having each would have the weekly meeting with the respective teams the respective teams in particular would know who to speak to yeah. rather than relying on the overworked manager as their central point of communication. Interesting and, structure. You know, exactly that. And perhaps crudely, I remember interviewing a VP of engineering once who, would, um, who joked and said, I suppose it was a half joke, who said, I need a designated throat to choke. I need to know there's a single throat I can reach out to and choke if things go wrong. Oh, wow. And okay. there's something I'm quite sympathetic to here with the agency model where at least the teams receiving the data work marketing sales and so on there's a real comfort to them knowing that there's a very specific person they can speak to yeah i think you're right there i think having that and that's why we see the alignment of specialist analytics resource per product domains you've got the marketing analytics function the product yeah. analytics yeah. people and so we're seeing a big push on that kind of product management piece as well where they're really looking for deep domain expertise in it could be healthcare data with AI within a startup, and actually they're narrowing those those channels down so much. So, as you rightly said, they are the the, the neck to choke if they you know to actually go to that person and make sure that is being delivered. Yeah, the hazard you're fighting for as you start growing the team, because realize you've probably, if you're a typical data person transitioning from a team of one, you've probably gone through the other problems we mentioned, where mm. people are getting frustrated that your deliverables are getting delayed there is an unknown delivery date on everything and so on and so the force you're fighting against as you're fixing things and hiring is where other teams go we're just going to hire our own analysts mm. and at this point you've now got different sources of truth different standards for what's an acceptable analysis versus not you end up with a lack of empathy felt towards people on those teams, should that happen? Should marketing hire a data person? They're not really a data organization, right? How will no. promotions work? How will compensation work? Who does this person go to when they're struggling with a giant SQL query? It's a bit of an unpleasant situation for that person. but And so it's your job to make sure things don't get to that stage. 
which they often do when the data manager doesn't take charge. Yeah, and I guess that's even more prevalent in those smaller organizations or a startup culture where everyone is doing so much and maybe not necessarily um, don't necessarily have the time um, and the, uh, I suppose, the foresight to get ahead of problems or actually yep. invest generally in that. It's- because exactly that everyone data tends to be a bit of a stepchild in organizations it's sort yeah. of it's such a varied reporting structure across companies you know sometimes i used to report to vps of engineering i've seen other situations where they report to cfos just serving our own customers or coos mm-hmm. um, or product also in some cases and so it's unlike an engineering organization or a sales organization i don't think we're at the stage where the CEO hiring the data person even knows what to tell them regarding planning for the future. Yeah. More often than not, it's, well, you're a data person. Thanks very much. Off to the races and just help us. And I yeah. can't quite help you in turn, but uh, just keep helping us, please. Absolutely. With, with engineering, it's very different. You've, everyone has a very um, known structure. We need a VP of engineering. We need a direct, you know, we need directors at some point, we need managers and regular engineers and infrastructure engineers and product engineers and so on. Data, unfortunately, it's a bit of a lone wolf profession so far. I'd hardly agree, actually. I think where you see the issues and the companies coming unstuck is when there's that lack of understanding at a C-suite, but also the lack of genuine investment into giving that function time to deliver their ROI that they are fundamentally hiring this team for. And there's been that old, old age discussion of, you know, does the CDO rightfully have a seat at the top table? Um, and organizations who get that right uh, typically are the ones that have a far more advanced and uh, effective, you know, data culture. So, yeah, it's interesting you say that because it's something we've seen a lot of. Yeah, often it really just comes down to a lack of prioritization. Some leadership people and companies think, well, we need a data person because I've got these questions. And they often don't go down the path of, well, are these questions even important? How many of them really matter, right? And so they rush off and hire a data person who gets tossed in and who automatically assumes, well, everything's important. But data, just I think it happens to be one of these fields where it's so easy to ask questions, right? Where it's not quite easy to suggest programs to be written. So you won't really make casual, too many casual requests of your engineering team. But it's very easy, I think, to just ask questions about your own data. Well, what about this and what about that? There's a certain discipline, I think, that culturally companies, many of them, startups especially, haven't quite imbibed when thinking about this. I think it's the same for, you know, to play devil's advocate, we talked about hiring and expanding a data team. Oftentimes, it's actually not, it may not be as necessary to do so. You know, so much of the work can possibly be imagined. One huge failure mode I've seen with data people, and of course, I was prone to it um, early on, was interfering with the finance team. You know, so often finance teams, of course, work perhaps in a seemingly crude fashion with Excel sheets left and right. You know, they're drowning in Excel and all the company's important reporting is done in Excel. And to a data person, this is borderline offensive. You know, well, what's going on here? Where's my sexy dashboard sitting on clean SQL? And sometimes the data person will go off and sort of insert themselves into this 
seemingly filthy situation and go, well, this is a load of rubbish. Trust me, I'll make you a lovely, sexy dashboard and it'll all be sorted out. Then they go on. Of course, finance data is always complex. Mm-hmm. Every company has their own accounting rules. And now they're down the path of playing with a lot of data they don't understand. So you now the finance team needs to get involved. And the work piles up and piles up to get to these sexy official finance dashboards that now the data person needs to hire other people to help them. So they grow their team. Fine enough. Dashboards are built six months later. Everything looks pretty. Well, three months after that, the data person discovers that finance isn't using them and they're still on Excel. Now, the root cause here was the data person blindly jumping into something with enthusiasm and no one really resisting them, but they didn't check as to whether this was an essential priority. I think a conversation with finance simply asking, is this problematic? And if finance said, we're actually all right, you know, we've been working with Excel for years and years, just leave them be. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame Mm -hmm. in letting things be if there are no problems. Like so much of this is uh, an issue of human beings and what they want. And if the human beings on the other side don't need or don't express a need for data help, then maybe don't hire, right? And don't take on projects that no one has expressed a need for. So I've seen that failure mode, not from the organization, but from the overly enthusiastic data people. You know, they'll achieve a few successes and start inserting themselves everywhere without checking as to whether they're needed or not. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because you're right, when they go into an organization, especially when they work in a particular area, maybe leaner and they subsequently are going to impart their knowledge and impart themselves into a function that fundamentally has been running pretty well without them and I suppose that's also ties into that big push for kind of self-serve analytics and where it, it if the adoption of that isn't championed from the top then you are wasting your time exactly no one is going to log on and build their queries no one's going to use it you're going to have bad governance practices and you're just fundamentally going to have bad reports Yep, exactly. Yep. There's something so crucial about, and it sounds cynical, but I think this is really just how organizations work and how people work. You do have need some sort of big boss endorsement. Mm. You know, there's other, you're not the one deciding how other people get promoted, which means you're not the one deciding their methods of working, their bosses are. And if their bosses aren't endorsing any sort of self-serve analytics help, then I think just all bets are off, you know, just stop working on that stuff until you get some sort of endorsement from someone. And this is a big failure mode. Another one I see with um, fresh face data people, they'll just charge forwards, build all sorts of stuff. And then six months later, they're just in the dumps feeling despondent going, well, no one cares about data here. (laughs) And then they ultimately leave and move on. And I know you're obviously Polytomic are right in the forefront of the ETL space, which obviously ties into this huge increase in the adoption and interest in obviously the modern data world and fundamentally analytics engineering, which is obviously Fishtown and DBT has kind of mm-hmm. born this new role that we, we, we've, I've never seen kind of a wholesale change in a sector that as much as what we've seen with what DBT have done. And obviously with Polytomic being within that ETL space, what do you think the future holds for that kind of modern data stack? And I know we alluded to this mm. at the beginning in terms of there's going to be a consolidation, but in terms of how those tools are going to be used and how the you know, teams might be structured in the future, what, what do you think the future holds for that? No, I do try to shy away from predicting the future. I've gotten it wrong <laughs> every single time, but let's have a go here. Um, I do reckon 
consolidation is worth underlining. I think there's something rather natural um, with the history of technology here. You know, the early days of the PC industry, you, you had a million different, I, I mean, they weren't even called PCs, but computers. You know, mm-hmm. you had your Commodore 64, your Amiga, your Amstrad, your Spectrum Z128 or whatever. And then everything consolidated into an IBM PC or a Mac. Um, before iPhones, we used to carry what, cameras and MP3 players and pagers and GPS devices and phones. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a platform um, with multiple bits of functionality. I think there's something very natural in the history of technology that just predicts consolidation no matter what, especially in highly fragmented markets. Beyond that, I'm actually not so sure if the, and this may be heretical, but I'm not sure if the idea of a giant data team will endure for that long in that Mm. one could claim and I may be making this claim for some areas and not others, but one could claim that the requirement to hire so many data people is simply due to a lack of tooling that can serve those who, rec- who rely on the data people. Mm. There's a paradox with data teams where they're the ones most equipped to work with the data, but they're the ones who least understand it. It's a rare data person who knows what's going on in Salesforce or NetSuite, or the marketing system, or even the Mm. customer support system. The domain knowledge behind the data doesn't sit with the data people, it sits with others. But the data people are the, um, I mean, the tools to be used to extract insights from this data, despite them not really understanding it. And so I do wonder, and I shy away from making this prediction, although it's very tempting to do so, I do wonder whether it's really a matter of time until a chunk of the what we call data work today just gets segmented off and those who know the data get to extract their own insights due to more advanced tooling than what we have today. Yeah, I like that. And actually, I probably concur with that as well because what we've seen, you've only got to look at the responsibilities of a data engineer now. We've got the analytics engineering role. You know, we're looking at data ops being this new yeah. area that fundamentally looks at more the support side like DevOps. You've got ML ops. You, so you're seeing the operational side of the data stack as opposed to you're right the the owning of the the tool the analytics bits yep yeah it may be that the operations roles end up expanding and that this really Mm. becomes an infrastructure problem to sort out Mm. whatever the new technologies are that help those on the business side serve themselves whatever Um, whatever happens i think it's going to be a fascinating insight and i won't get into it now but we've only got to see what's happened with kind of open AI over the last kind of six, 12 months to see that we are really at that transitional point Uh, and Mm -hmm. an exciting one. I think for many, it's quite daunting and terrifying, but for a lot of us, it's actually like, this is is strange. Yeah. I tend to sort of calm myself by just looking at historical analogies and you just tend to know what's coming on. You know, the Luddites, um, you know, revolted, where was it in Manchester or Doncaster (laughs) or wherever, when um, the, um, you know, cotton mill came about and the sewing machines came about and so on. Historic, you know, before we had personal alarm clocks, um, I think until about 1950s in the north of England, this was an actual job where um, someone with a long rod would just walk the street and knock on windows to wake people up. You know, they'd sign up and say, wake me up on such and such time per yeah. the town clock. That's just sort of the natural wave of technology. You have gatekeepers, if you will, that just melt away due to technology. And alarm clocks came about these guys weren't needed anymore they were gatekeepers to waking up on time and there's probably Mm. something similar to happen i think with 
ChatGPT as well. It's, there's a natural aspect to it. And then you get new jobs that are invented. You know, we, alarm clock manufacturing became a huge yeah. industry and we needed people to build these things. And there's probably something uh, similar that will happen with this stuff here. Absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer you got to embrace it. Look at what happened with the dot com, you know, the Internet. And then I think what's what surprised a lot of people is the the rapid rate at which things have changed. Uh, we're talking the last year, all of a sudden it's front and center of every discussion we are yeah. having. It's it is rapid. It's, I mean, I think it's fascinating and exciting, but it's mm. also understandable as to why people are stressed. Right. I mean, imagine you've hired a team of nine people to do things that's if ChatGPT advances enough, I could eliminate six of those jobs. That's yeah. a scary thought because, well, it's the jobs being eliminated. You're building your career on being the sort of person who, you know, oh, I grew a team from five people to 50, yeah. right? So you can get the next VP job or whatever it is. But again, this is really what technology is. You know, in the same way the iPhone cut down the need for carrying five devices at the same time. Technology yeah. lets us do more with less. And then at some point, the more bit expands. We get to do more with more it's just so hard to anticipate it. Um, you know, when the car was invented, well, everyone knew it would get faster from point A to point B, but no one could predict, um, you know, in America, you've got Walmart and these giant department stores in the middle of nowhere yeah. that wouldn't have shown up were it not for the car. And, you know, that created its own avenue of new jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point we're in. And I, I know people listening to this, as, as I mentioned earlier on that, considering the either hopping into kind of the leadership route and taking on that mm. first hire and mentoring versus weighing up that kind of individual contributor route. And as someone like yourself, who's, who, who's worn both hats, what do you think the, what advice would you offer up kind of aspiring future leaders, whether when it comes to deciding whether to go down that management route or actually stay on the individual contributor it's a very personal decision. I mean, definitely one isn't better than the other. I'd say the individual contributor route is a lot more peaceful. You know, no one. <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when you're a manager, you've got your own team, you know, shouting at you. You've got all the other managers from the other teams shouting at you because they need this and that and this other thing, and people above you and so on. But there is, you know, people become managers for different reasons, and one big one is if you have a strong point of view as to how things should work you should probably become a manager because for better or worse, those are the people listen to when it comes to deciding how things should work. Mm. Um, for having a lot of domain knowledge and a strong point of view ends up being quite a powerful force multiplier. And if you know how things should be, or you have an opinion as to how things should be, and you're in a position to hire, then that's really the only way to make things happen, you know, beyond the smallest of scales. You do need people to help. No, you know, no man is an island and all that. Mm. So I think that's a big one. Just make sure to have an opinion as to how things should be. A lot of people will go, well, I want to be a manager because career progression. But I mean, realize companies, as much as they claim to care about that, really, you need to have a pitch for them, right? What's in it for them if they make you a manager? Yeah. And I think that's something many people don't think about. It's just, well, I'd like a promotion. Thanks very much. But it's not really how the world works. You're being paid, right? So the company needs to know what it'll get in return. So I'd say the big one is just have a vision. And it doesn't have to be grandiose. Just um, have an opinion as to how the team should operate, what problems you'd like to solve, and be okay working with people because that's what you'll be doing rather than technical yeah. work. 
No, thank you for that. I think it's a good natural uh, natural point to close off discussions. I think it's uh, so many people listening who are concerned about maybe stepping away from the technology, especially in the market we find ourselves in now. They're so worried about becoming that middle management layer of mm. you're not strategic, you, you're managing, your team's now being decimated, or you know, so actually you're almost a bit of a dead man walking or dead person walking. So. I think as long as people remain close to tech or that technology yeah. analyst at heart, then they're always going to be fine. Definitely true. There's um, If you do segue into a pure middle manager, now I realize they do exist at the large mm. corporations and the small ones, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I'm not really a fan of the manager who's a peer administrator or a peer bureaucrat. Uh, yeah. In a very literal sense, rather than derogatory one, I don't mean to insult anyone, but there <laughs> is something about being able to stick your head into technical matters, at least understand them, that results in a lot better work. It results in attracting more talented people to your team as well. Given a choice, few people would pick working for the bureaucrat versus the person who's a domain expert. And it helps you suss out whether your team is performing or not. It's impossible to do so if you're a pure bureaucrat who doesn't understand well, this is a hard technical task to understand why it takes a long time versus this other one. So I strongly encourage people to just still have a foot in the technical world exactly for these reasons. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much for your time, Galeb. And we'll make sure that we tag uh, Polytomic into the show when we broadcast. Be really excited for the majority of people listening here are immersed in that kind of modern data stack world anyway. So I'm sure they'll be really interested both from the and a C-suite level, but also down to the the user level. So I'll be, I'll make sure we tag you in. But yeah, thanks for your time. It's been uh, been a really great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure. Cheers, Gallup.